Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new award-winning release, The History of Intimacy by poet Habiba Badarun. The History of Intimacy is a tender, tangled account of the heady days in South Africa following Nelson Mandela's release from prison. This award-winning poetry collection portrays the innovative forms of music, kinship, and even self in, quote, the new, intricate country we understood was impossible. Listeners receive a 20% discount on the History of Intimacy or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by award-winning poet Morgan Parker's Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night, which Tracy K. Smith calls hilarious and hard-hitting. Featuring an introduction from Denez Smith, this new edition of Parker's debut collection of poems demonstrates why she's become one of the most beloved writers working today. Her command of language is on full display as she bobs and weaves between humor and pathos, grief and anxiety. Gwendolyn Brooks and Jay-Z, the New York School and Reality Television. Says Eileen Miles, there are piles of masterpieces here. Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night is out on July 13th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's conversation with Arthur Z about his career-spanning collection, The Glass Constellation, is rightfully one that ranges widely. From quarks and quantum entanglement to mushrooms and lichen, from the poetic image in Chinese and Japanese poetry, to various techniques from divination to translation as a means of breaking out of one's own established comfort zone into new ways of writing. I mention this because if you subscribe to the bonus audio, I encourage you to listen to Arthur's contribution after the main conversation, because Arthur has used the act of translating Chinese poetry in a really fascinating way. In four different periods, during his 50 years of writing poetry, when he felt like he wanted to break out of the way he wrote, but didn't know how, he would choose a different group of Chinese poets to translate, to inhabit the imaginations and syntax of these poets as a way to usher in a new era within his own writing. We talk about this at length in the main conversation, but in the bonus audio archive, he chooses five of these translations, two from Tang Dynasty poets, one from a Chinese modernist poet, and two from contemporary Chinese poets to read for us. And what's remarkable about listening to him take us on this chronological journey through these translations is that you can feel the echo of his own journey as a poet, the ways he has changed through time with his own writing as he moves from one era of Chinese poetry translation to the next. As many of you know, the bonus audio is only one of many potential things you can get by becoming a listener supporter of the show. There are collectibles from Forrest Gander, Ursula K. Le Guin, Nikki Finney, and Ricky Ducournay. There's becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving books months before they're available to the general public, and many other things. 
And there's also the sense of community, brainstorming new guests to invite together and getting the emails with references and resources with each episode. These are all meant to entice people to consider becoming a listener supporter. But I also hope the conversations themselves, whether they've helped your own artistic practice or simply been moving or thought-provoking, might also in and of themselves make you pause and consider supporting this quixotic endeavor. As longtime listeners know, I closed my job of 22 years back in October because of the pandemic and leapt into this full time, hoping to be caught by you as I made a leap into an uncertain future. And I have been, and it feels miraculous, honestly. And thinking of today's conversation with Arthur Z about both quantum entanglement and the entanglement of subterranean mycelial networks that allow all sorts of communication and sharing, I think of all the ways we are now entangled. I'm here because of you. I'm literally here because of you. Back then, when this all happened in October, between 1% and 2% of listeners were supporters. Now it is between 3 and 4 Can you join us and help support Between the Covers? Get to 5%. Again, there are lots of potential perks and swag and content. and You can find it all at patreon.com slash between the covers. And there's also today's conversation with the remarkable Arthur Z. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and translator Arthur Z. Z was an undergraduate student at MIT pursuing a career in the sciences, but after taking a poetry workshop with Denise Levertov, he ultimately transferred to UC Berkeley where he studied poetry, classical Chinese, and started translating classical Chinese poetry. For most of his adult life, however, Arthur Z has lived in New Mexico, where he was the first poet laureate of Santa Fe. Arthur Z is also Professor Emeritus at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where he taught for nearly a quarter century, and where he was instrumental in the school's development of an undergraduate program in creative writing. Arthur Z is the author of 11 books of poetry. These include the Pulitzer Prize finalist Compass Rose, the winner of the Penn Southwest Book Award, The Ginkgo Light, 
the winner of the Asian American Literary Award, The Red Shifting Web, the winner of the American Book Award, Archipelago, and most recently, Sightlines, winner of the National Book Award in Poetry. Arthur Z has also published a book of Chinese poetry translations, The Silk Dragon, winner of the Western States Book Award, and was the editor of Chinese Writers on Writing. His many honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, two National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, and a Lannan Literary Award, among many others. And in 2012, he was elected Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. He's here today on Between the Covers to discuss his latest and most monumental publication to date, The Glass Constellation, which collects 50 years of Arthur Z's poetry, as well as 26 new poems. The Kyoto Journal Review says of The Glass Constellation, In the case of poet Arthur Z, master is no misnomer. Z as poet has been continually searching for new ways of making poetry alive, to make way for the breathing infrastructure of the poem in all its fragility and rigor. As a result of his dynamic poetic efforts, the map of human consciousness will have grown more detailed. The Chicago Review of Books adds, Arthur Z's exquisite complexities, his work is often at the nexus of modernism and spiritual contemplation, are intellectual and compassionate and altogether unforgettable. He's a verbal architect employing sharp and memorable connections to craft wildly exciting yet fully grounded experimental works through the frictions and contradictions of language, ideas, and imagery. Finally, the Library Journal says in its starred review, if any living American poet merits the attention proper to a career retrospective, it is National Book Award winning Z, a monumental collection from a poet whose lasting importance should now be recognized. The Glass Constellation is essential for dedicated readers of contemporary American poetry. Welcome to Between the Covers, Arthur Z. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Well, first, I just want to say congratulations. This is such, this is just an amazing, uh, amazing book. Thanks. It's uh, fun for me to look back and see every four to six years I published a book and then the journey over, you know, 50 years is yeah. uh, humbling and, and exciting, thrilling to be able to put all the poems together. Well, even though your your poetry, your your collected works over the past half century have been something I've been immersing myself in for six to nine months in anticipation of today, I'm nevertheless a latecomer to your work. But perhaps it's sort of fitting, given just how many incredible Native poets have been students of yours, from Sherman Bitsui to D.G. Oakpick to Orlando White, that I first came across your poetry when four or five years ago I opened Laylee Long Soldier's book, Whereas, and saw the epigraph attributed to you, which says, no word has any special hierarchy over any other, a saying that she says she wrote down as a student of yours in a class on deep image. And I, I wanted to start here as it feels like one potential entryway into your lifelong poetic project. What, what does it mean to approach language in a non-hierarchical way to you, and, and why do so? 
Thanks for this wonderful question. As a preface, let me just say that uh, Sherwin, Bitsui, D.G. Akpik, Orlando White, Lily Long Soldier, they were all students of mine at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And I created a foundational class when I was the chair of the creative writing program called the Poetic Image. And in that class, I walked students through classical Chinese poems, character by character, and they made translations into English and into their native languages. And one of the things I found I had to do as a teacher with native students was disassemble their preconceptions or ideas of what a poem is supposed to be, because they would oftentimes come into a class, maybe like many high school students, thinking, oh, a poem has to have a metrical pattern, it has to have a, a rhyming pattern, or um, they had all sorts of preconceptions. And as part of dismantling that and getting to open up the arena to consider of what a poem can be, I found myself looking uh, very simply at uh, key words where I noticed um, there was a tendency to maybe prioritize or hierarchically prioritize, say, sun, moon, river, horse, uh, sunset, certain stock Native American images that might fit in traditional poems, but were really pretty much cliches for um, or stereotypes for Native American poetry today. And so one of the things I did was try and say, for instance, the word quark could be just as valid in a poem as moon, or the word as, something very innocuous, uh, which has many different meanings, or the word set, which has the most meanings of any word in the English language, that these words that are often overlooked could be just as powerful and could have effects just as poetic as the traditional sort of tropes out of nature. And uh, so that was kind of like a very first step of dismantling preconceptions of what a poem could be and opening up the arena. And Lely told me she wrote it down in the poetic image class that that idea that um, one word is no more valuable than another was really important to her. And of course, she ran with that beautifully in her book, Whereas. I like that you mentioned the word as, because you elevate the word as. Uh, it, you repeat the word as in your collection, Kipu, I think, um, perhaps making it a more important word than we normally consider it. And I was wondering if insisting on non, non-hierarchical uh, approach to language is something more natural to a language like Chinese versus English, like where the word heart and the word autumn, when put together, create the word sorrow. So sorrow being an autumn in the heart. But at the same time, we could see heart, autumn, and sorrow perhaps having an equal status. Whereas in English, I'm thinking pronouns and prepositions and conjunctions all sort of automatically become subordinate to nouns and verbs. And I wondered if this was part of the appeal for you for instance, when you elevate the word as to take a quality from a language that uses ideograms or that might have a more apparently pictorial component and try to bring that wholeness and equality into English or to trouble English or to uh, strange English. Absolutely. 
um, if I pick up your understanding of the character sorrow in Chinese, which has autumn above and heart mind below, and autumn having plant on the left and fire on the right, uh, I'm fascinated by language. And the Chinese language in particular, I find endlessly fascinating because in say creating the character for sorrow, it doesn't necessarily prioritize heart or mind over autumn. It to me is, and I'm drawing on scientific background, to me it's making or creating fields of energy or fields of magnetism, attraction and repulsion. And it makes absolute sense once you see autumn in the heart mind for that to be sorrow, but it doesn't prioritize one over the other. And I find those combinations in Chinese characters endlessly fascinating. At its simplest level, the word, the character bright is composed of sun on the left and moon on the right. And if I didn't know, if I wasn't told that meant bright, if someone just wrote sun and moon, I could easily think, oh, well, that's the word for eclipse, or that's the word for brilliance, or that's the word for, how is it that, you know, out of a hundred different possibilities, people agreed that that was the word, the meaning was bright. Um, I find that endlessly fascinating and mysterious. And um, with English, sometimes I like to look inside of, um, etymologically inside of words. So for instance, the word complexity, plex means to braid and come means wither together. So complexity is to braid, wither together, but clearly the braiding has a kind of priority or precedence or a hierarchical value over the wither together. And uh, for me, the Chinese, one of the mysteries is the way the radicals work is, again, they're like fields of manic, magnetic energy and you can feel attraction and repulsion and the repulsion, the tension can be just as interesting and powerful as the attraction. Um, so there's that sense of maybe uh, intuitively I drew on that background. I grew up speaking Chinese before I spoke English in New York City. So I wasn't like intellectually or consciously thinking of an agenda saying, okay, I'm gonna write poems that don't have a hierarchy. I think it just naturally happened. And you could also say Taoism is a kind of a factor too. this idea of letting go of non-attachment, of not trying to hold on and prioritize something is more valuable than another. Uh, I can say that working with poems in English, I did get to a certain stage where I wanted to take words that I thought many English readers would take for granted, like the word as which in the title poem of my book, Kipu, and, and the eponymous name, uh, Kipu, for the title poem, uses the word as repeatedly, but as the word is repeated, it brings in a different dictionary definition, a different denotation. So I see it as a form of layering and creating a kind of resonance and a field of interaction. I don't expect the American reader to get that right away and say, oh, look at what Arthur's doing, I want these subtleties to be there and in some ways be mysteries that pull a reader back so that the more a reader reads my poems, the more they see in them. Um, Similar to Laylee Long Soldier, the, the Cherokee poet Santi Frazier also took your, your poetic image class. 
And he has theorized in an article that more than one generation of Institute of American Indian Arts graduates can trace their ability to construct what he calls potent word pictures to their exposure to ancient Chinese and Japanese poetry through this class. And it's a class, as you mentioned, where you put up a poem, say, from a, a poet from the Tang Dynasty, show the students several different English translations, walk them through the poem character by character, and then have them make translations in English and their own native languages, and ultimately have them write poems of their own, sort of under this field that you've created of, of influence and, and encounter. Um, but I, I was wondering if when, when both Long Soldier and, and Fraser talk about this attention to image and how important it has been for the poetry graduates at IAI, um, if you could talk about image in and of itself, but also whether an attention to image is, in somehow, is somehow related to this non-hierarchical approach also. Classical Chinese poetry loves to foreground imagery. That's the one thing that pulled me immediately, that attracted me immediately to ancient Chinese poetry was the potency and power of the images. And the verbs are present tense and the images almost felt like present tense, like these poems written over a thousand years ago could be happening today. Um, and I think you could argue that the image in classical Chinese poetry also becomes, interestingly, a vehicle for emotion. I'm thinking of a Buddhist poet, Wang Wei, who, for instance, uh, in a famous poem, Deer Park, uh, the ending image is sunlight shining on a piece of green moss. And it's really hard to convey in English the kind of ecstatic thrill and, you know, sensational quality that that image has um, at the end of the poem. On the one hand, it's ultimate transience, and paradoxically, it also is revelatory of a kind of permanence. So I think that foregrounding of the poetic image, well, has been crucial for my own poetry and poetics, but it's part of the key to the vitality of ancient Chinese poetry, that immediacy, the power of making someone really slow down and look carefully and see and that kind of revelation of attention when everything is sort of focused and concentrated. Um, these are really sort of potent poetic vehicles to have. Well, you, you've, said in, you've said in one interview that if you're unsure what to do next as a poet, it is great to translate someone else's work, that to step into another imaginative world helps you figure out a next move. And the way you walked your students through, in your poetic image class, through multiple translations and ultimately having them arrive at their own poem seems in, in a way as a, as a gesture to mimic your own, your own journey. And I'm thinking that in the seventies, one way you found your way into studying poetry was through and, and to studying Chinese was by translating Tang dynasty poets at the time. But what is most interesting to me is that in your introduction to your book of translations, Silk Dragon, you say translations continued to periodically play a significant role in your evolution as a poet. So 
1983, after your third book, some 12 years after you were translating Tang Dynasty poets, you translated a different group of Chinese poets that you felt would help open up further possibilities to you in your writing. And then you did this again in 1996 with a third different group of Chinese poets to push yourself as a poet to new places. And given that we're we're stepping back and looking at the arc of your life as a poet so far, that the glass constellation gives us this opportunity to do so. And in you assembling it, you have had the opportunity to look at, at your body of work so far. I wondered if you could talk about the ways your poetry has shifted through the decades, but also the ways that these three eras of translation facilitated that, why you chose the translations you chose to help you reach beyond where you were at the time into something new and, and unknown. Thank you. These are fabulous questions and I'm going to give you a long response. I, I, hope, I hope so. No, I love a long response. In, in the beginning, uh, when I was a student at UC Berkeley, I created my own major in poetry and Josephine Miles, um, who was a university professor, was my mentor and she let me take whatever I wanted because when I arrived, I went into her office and I said, I'm never gonna graduate. I have these science credits. I wanna study classical Chinese. I wanna take Blake, I don't fit anywhere. And she said, just take what you want. And uh, she would uh, go through not only my poems, but my translations. And in those first, in those two years, I was at UC Berkeley I was studying conversational Mandarin every day. I was working with a graduate student from Taiwan who, uh, like I was later to do with native students, wrote out the Chinese characters for me uh, from classical Chinese poems. And he would look up references and allusions and uh, he loved those poems and he was just willing to do it. So I owe a lot of my training of classical Chinese poetry to Tsai Mei Shi, who was this grad student then. And in that first stage, I was consciously looking at the Tang Dynasty masters, Li Bai, Du Fu, Wang Wei. And, uh, and I was consciously writing out the characters to each of their poems, character by character, stroke by stroke, to try and step inside of the imaginative mind that was creating them so that as I was writing the characters in my own awkward handwriting, it was a way for me to personalize the language, but also to think about, oh, how did this character come next and why this one? And so to me, it was really foundational for my own early development uh, in my own poems in English. And if you look at the glass constellation in the first book, there's a poem named Li Bai. And in the second book, there's a poem named Wang Wei. And those are two short poems in English, but with styles or allusions to the particular uh, Chinese poets um, that are, are mentioned there. But in that early stage, I was really just trying to learn my craft to think about how can I create a really strong, tight um, poem. And in many ways, my metaphor or image for that period is like a piece of ceramic ware, a beautiful pot. When I was at UC Berkeley in the 70 to 72, there was this image of the well-wrought urn that a poem could be like this beautiful artifact, a beautiful pot that had been fired and came out of the kiln. Um, and 
that was helpful for me for my first couple of books. And after my third book, Dazzled, I started to feel constrained by that conception of a poem, that it was something intense, well-made, but say written within 15 or 20 lines and complete in itself. And I started to sort of chafe and work against those kinds of restrictions. And that included vocabulary, which is, you know, to come back to Lely, um, using every word in the English language, because Tang Dynasty poetry uses or relies on moonlight, wine, river, plum blossoms, peach blossoms, birds endlessly, and it can become suffocating and extremely restricting. So I like to say then at the second stage, if, if I'm going to delineate stages of my journey, I had to break that urn apart. I had to throw it down and smash it. And I love to tell this story out of Japanese tea ceremony. I, I don't know if there's time to do that. Um, but in Japanese tea ceremony, uh, Seno Rikyu, who is a coalescer of all the aesthetics of tea, supposedly goes into a village and a merchant who spent a fortune to buy this tea bowl to impress Rikyu invites him and at the end asks Rikyu, well, how did you enjoy it? And Rikyu says, oh, it's okay. And he puts the bowl back on the shelf and leaves. And the merchant is furious. He's spent a fortune buying this bowl to impress Rikyu, who he wanted to say, oh, you have such fantastic aesthetic taste, or you know, you're so, so cultivated. And in the legend, the um, merchant smashes, throws the tea bowl down on the ground, and it breaks apart. And a servant comes and glues the shards back together. And years later, Rikyu comes to the village, and he sees this disheveled, you know, irregular bowl. And he picks it off the shelf and he says, this is the best tea bowl I've ever seen. Who made it? And I love that story because when I think about it, well, there's the original potter who makes the tea bowl. There's the merchant who, in a fit of anger, smashes it. That's part of the remaking. There's the servant. So there's the whole class issue who is like horrified and glues back as best he can the shards. And ultimately, there's also Riku because he picks it off the shelf and says, this is the kind of bowl I most value. And that uh, tea story is important to me because in many ways, uh, starting with River River and particularly with my fifth book, Archipelago, I was taking my conception of the well-made poem and really breaking it apart. And for me, the... Uh, sensation of emotion, of allowing more emotion into the poem, of bringing more of the world into the poem, of letting go in that sense of um, losing control, of, you know, breaking something apart and what happens, happens. There's that element of chance, but I love that there's sort of emotion propelling the force and maybe the force behind the language. Uh, so in my second stage, um, when I turn to translating Chinese poetry, I was consciously looking at poets who could help me write a different kind of a poem. And Winnie Daw, um, whose dates are 1899 to 1946, was really important to me. He was a Chinese modernist who knew the classical tradition, but who shattered it, who um, 
wrote a poem called Dead Water, which is taken as an image of China in the 1920s, which is full of turmoil, warfare, um, colonial you know, oppression, all sorts of really difficult times. And Winnie Daw is creating his own forms. He created a nine character line where the silence, the caesura shifts inside of the line, unlike classical Chinese where the silences are regulated and predetermined. When I translated Winnie Daw, I was so excited to think about how he was taking traditional Chinese form and breaking it apart or remaking it basically saying that may have been fine for, you know, 700 common era, but it's, it's not adequate, it's not sufficient, it can't meet the needs for the challenges of today. And translating Winnie Daw, some of his poems are quite long, like Miracle, it really opened things up for me and made me think a lot more about voice and about fragmentation and um, emotional pressure behind the language. And you can see that in Archipelago. And then in my third stage of translation, I came back to what are called the hermetic Tang poets, uh, Li He and Li Shangyin. Li He is, you, some people think of him as a surrealist before his time. He supposedly had to ride a horse or a donkey every morning. And then phrases of poems would come to him on horseback or donkey back. <laughs> And he would write the phrases in ink, you know, and throw them into a saddlebag and he would go home and look at the phrases and then piece them together into a poem. But oh, that's wow. sort of his legendary story. <laughs> I love that. And, yeah. And Li Shangyin, on the other hand, wrote uh, these very veiled love poems, but full of nuance and innuendo and um, particularly, you know, maybe difficult, but um, and with the issue of difficulty, I, I like to say, you know, I'm not writing poems to be difficult. I'm writing the poems I feel that I need to write. And I, I feel that's the case with Li Shangyin. He's not writing to be difficult, but he's writing out of this intense yearning. And he's finding that the veiled kind of language he uses is what most satisfies that impulse. Um, so when I translated those two poets, and also uh, Bada Shanrin, um, I wanted to do some poets I thought a lot of Americans wouldn't know. Uh, he's better known as a painter, and he stopped speaking for like 13 years, and he only painted and uh, wrote poetry, and he wrote the poems in his paintings, so they uh, have a kind of ekphrastic quality. So I was consciously choosing poets that I thought were at the fringe of what was at the edge of the classical tradition that were expanding or playing with or innovating in interesting ways. And um, that continued to feed me, you know, through my next set of books, really, the Ginkgo Light, Compass Row, Sightlines. And I would add, there's actually a fourth phase of Chinese translation, which you didn't mention, which I was just thinking about, because starting in 2004, Seven, I started to go to Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China for international poetry festivals. And as part of those festivals, the poets would get together and as part of cultural exchange, we would translate each other's poetry. So for instance, Shi Chuan, whose English is really, really good, translated four of my poems into Chinese. And 
I remember working on one poem of his <laughs> with the dictionary and asking him questions. And uh, but you know, I was very happy with the prose poem that I translated of his. But I have about a dozen translations of contemporary poets from China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and and Yang Lian, who left China and lives in Berlin, Germany now. And that set of translations, I'm not sure what the influence is doing those on me. They're very modern Chinese is a whole different language from classical Chinese, but Chichuan's prose poems, Yang Lian's uh, drawing on the tradition and transforming it, I, I think they do have an influence on my most recent work as well. I, I love listening to you describe this interplay between translation and your own poetry over the course of decades. It's just amazing. But before we um, we talk further, uh, this seems like a good place to hear some poetry um, too. And I, I picked out four poems, two early poems and two early middle poems, The Taoist Painter and Juniper Fires, okay. um, and then um, Parallax and the Unnameable River. Sure. Uh, very different poems. If you're okay uh, so, with me, if you're okay yeah. with me choosing. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, you know, so often uh, poets will go on like a reading tour or whatever, and I find, oh, they're reading the same poems again and again and again. This is a lot of fun for me because I feel like you're uh, delving in and choosing ones that I might not choose. So let me start with the Taoist painter. He begins with charcoal and outlines the yellow fringes of the trees. Then he rubs in the stumps, black and brown, with an uneasy motion of his thumbs. Unlike trees in the north, he says, I have the option of season. And he paints the leaves in the upswing of the wind and the swans craning their necks. But the sunlight moving in patches obscures and clarifies his view. When he walks off in silence, we look at his painting and stand astonished to see how in chiaroscuro the leaves drift to their death. And then here is Juniper Fires. Juniper fires burn in the crisp night. I am inebriated on juniper smoke. And as my mind clears, I see a white crane standing one-legged in the snow and see clearly the rocks and shaggy pines, the winter moon and creek. Uh, parallax. So just as a preface that opens with two words in the Hopi language, I think it was Auden who said a poet is above all else passionate about language. And I love sort of learning uh, words or phrases from other languages. And it helps me also reflect on um, what English does or doesn't do. And so um, Kwa Kwa and Askuli is the poem will reveal her, uh, a male and female way of saying thank you. Parallax. Kwa Kwa, Askuli, 
The shift in Hopi when a man or woman says, thank you, becomes a form of parallax. A man travels from Mindanao to Kyushu and says his inner geography is enlarged by each new place. Is it? Might we not grow more by staring for 24 hours at a single pine needle? I watch a woman tip an ashtray and empty a few ashes into her mouth, but ah, I want other soliloquies. I want equivalents to Juga Liang sending his fire ships downstream into Cao Cao's fleet. It does not mean a geneticist must quit and devote his life to the preservation of rhinoceros, but it might mean watching a thousand snow geese drift on water as the sky darkens minute by minute. Qua qua, asquali, whenever, wherever. And then uh, the last poem to River River, the nameable river. One. Is it in the anthracite face of a coal miner, crystallized in the veins and lungs of a steel worker? pulverized in the grimy hands of a railroad engineer? Is it in a child naming a star, coconuts washing ashore, dormant in a volcano along the Rio Grande? You can travel the 4,000 miles of the Nile to its source and never find it. You can climb the five highest peaks of the Himalayas and never recognize it. You can gaze through the largest telescope and never see it, but it's in the capillaries of your lungs. It's in the space as you slice open a lemon. It's in a corpse burning on the Ganges, in rain splashing on banana leaves. Perhaps you have to know you are about to die to hunger for it. Perhaps you have to go alone into the jungle armed with a spear to truly see it. Perhaps you have to have pneumonia to sense its crush. But it's also in the scissor hands of a clock. It's in the precessing motion of a top when a torque makes the axis of rotation describe a cone. And the cone spinning on a point gathers past present, future. Two, in a crude theory of perception, the apple you see is supposed to be a copy of the actual apple, but who can step out of his body to compare the two? Who can step out of his life and feel the Milky Way flow out of his hands? An unpicked apple dies on a branch. That is all we know of it. It turns black and hard, a corpse on the Ganges. Then go ahead and map out 3,000 miles of the Yangtze. Walk each inch, feel its surge and flow as you feel the surge and flow in your own body. And the spinning cone of a precessing top 
is a form of existence that gathers and spins death and life into one. It is in the duration of words, but beyond words. River, 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 river. The coal miner may not know he has it. The steel worker may not know he has it. The railroad engineer may not know he has it, but it is there. It is in the smell of an avocado blossom and in the true passion of a kiss. We've been listening to Arthur Z. read from The Glass Constellation, new and collected poems from Copper Canyon Press. That last poem gives me goosebumps. Um, I, I want to I take a line from it. Uh, I want to take a line from The Unnameable River where you say, who can step out of his body to compare the two? Who can step out of his life and feel the Milky Way flow out of his hands? And I, I wanted to take that as a, as a segue into um, questions about the self in relationship to poetry. Uh, because your poems, even when they have an I and a you in them, often also have a feeling of having a bird's eye view or a God's eye view. Um, for me, it feels like there's a decentering of the self or of a certain aspect of the self or the placing of the self in a much smaller way within a larger cosmos. And I'm thinking of the first chapter of Ursula Le Guin's idiosyncratic translation of the Tao Te Ching that goes, so the unwanting soul sees what's hidden and the ever-wanting soul sees only what it wants. And I was hoping you could talk to us about how you see yourself orienting to selfhood, both as a poet when creating poetry, but also the self within the poem itself. Thanks. This is an endlessly challenging and uh, rewarding, ultimately, uh, task. I think I'm not sure I can give you a very good answer, but I will try. And I would like to start with the idea of Chinese landscape painting, where the sense of a self is very small. For me, when I was starting to write, you know, 1968, 1970, the confessional school was very big, Robert Lowell, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, and there seemed to be so much mining of the self. And to me, it felt um, melodramatic, maybe a bit overwhelming, uh, intense, certainly, and, and powerful, certainly, but ultimately also a bit tedious. I felt like there was a lot of wallowing of the self. And uh, frankly, just, you know, growing up as a Chinese American in New York City, you know, with the sort of Chinese culture uh, in my background, I see, you know, a landscape painting where there are gigantic mountains and these waterfalls and way in the corner, you know, if you look really carefully, there's the whole path and a tiny microscopic man, basically like approaching a bridge. There's a sense of man being very small in the large scale uh, of things. So I do, I think, carry that sense, that Asian sense of, a self um, being small in a landscape. For me, it, uh, one way often dissolves the self into a landscape and that interests me. But there's this idea that um, the self is, you know, part of this larger cosmos, but isn't necessarily the main sort of primary focus. 
And um, but working and writing in English over time, I feel like my sense of self, the I in the poem has gotten more relaxed and more varied uh, and it's looser. And I think in my earlier poems, the eye is more like, I think Dana Levin said it was more like an eye looking like a camera lens or something looking out at the world. She didn't have the sense of this, uh, what she calls a spotlit singer being the center of the drama of the poem. Um, I like to use an eye and locate the eye, but I also think the eye is not coherent or uniform, like if we look inside of ourselves, we see so many different aspects to uh, who we are from one day to another, or even within an hour. Um, the self is complex. And I feel like, you know, maybe in that one in, of the self, there are many parts or many aspects of oneself. And so the um, using of the eye can become decentering when that sense of self is uh, becomes less certain, less defined. And sometimes when I use a you in a poem, the you can be like, it could be a reader, it could be another person. But sometimes I also feel like I'm in, engaging with an aspect of myself, like the you becomes a form of self-interrogation, like, you know, you see, and what happens if it's I see versus the you see, but the you is actually an aspect of oneself. So I feel like psychologically it gets very nebulous. And, um, and here's where I say I, I don't necessarily have a very good answer, but I think I'm interested in tracking an eye that is mutable, that um, isn't sort of one you know, unity that is unchanging. Um, there's a sense maybe in a Walt Whitman poem where that eye is like very strong and all seeing and uh, unified. And, and maybe it's also the way the, our world is today. You know, we face so many different kinds of challenges um, internally and externally that that sense, I think it's very hard to have that sense of a unified self today. And there's more of a sense of an I that's in tension with itself or aspects in tension with itself. And so uh, in using the I, it's kind of like, the way I was saying you could use the word as, and each time you use it, it brings in a different meaning or different possibility. And I think in writing poems with the first person singular I, in a way I'm doing that, I'm trying, I feel like the I is maybe slightly different from poem to poem. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a way of layering and honoring the sense of fluidity we have about our selfhood. Um, well, if we take that into praxis, you, you've talked elsewhere about how you like to write early in the morning when you're half awake, and also that you like to create an overabundance of drafts without knowing where you're going in the ge generative stage, and only later to go back and look for the language within everything that you've created that you want to use. Are these techniques of putting to the side the the more controlling aspects of self, say an ego that wants to organize or disappear the other aspects of self by being half awake and, and producing beyond your controlling mind? Uh, absolutely. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm making an anecdote here and then I'm coming back. Um, there's uh, a really well-known uh, calligrapher in the Bay Area, Kazuaki Tanahashi, who he probably wouldn't even remember me. We had dinner once in Santa Fe, uh, but it was an extremely important dinner for me because he actually got out his brush and um, paper and we did such things that I've never done before, like two-minded calligraphy, where two people hold the same brush and try and create the same stroke. And one person is writing it upside down and one person is writing it right side up. And, you know, when I held that brush and he, I started to move, he wouldn't let me move. And it's sort of like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? And that sense of sort of tension and stillness and motion happening was revelatory to me. And I remember asking him, well, when do you do your best work? And he said, I do it when I'm exhausted, when I lose my sense of control. And that's always interested me that maybe you could do it early in the day or late in the day. And early in the day for me is best when I'm not fully awake, I'm still in a kind of dream state. And absolutely, I mean, on the one hand, you know, as a poet, I am shaping the language. I am ultimately going to choose what words in what order syntactically are going to string together to create the poem. But if I know what the poem is about too soon, and this is just personal experience in my 20s, I would say, oh, I'm going to write a poem about this. I would write it, but then a week later, I'd look and I'd say, it's not that interesting. You know, it's sort of like you had it all, I had it all, you know, conceived and there wasn't a lot of discovery or surprise. And over time, I began to realize that if I slowed down the process, if I wasn't in such a hurry, I guess here's a social critique too. If I wasn't in such a hurry, maybe I could discover things I wouldn't otherwise find. And so when I started to just say, okay, I'm not going to worry about whether this is the poem or not. I'm just going to write phrases. I'm going to listen to the sound, the rhythm, the kind of spell and incantation. And working at dawn for me is a really magical time because I like to start before dawn. So I'm writing in the dark and then as dawn comes on, you know, branches of trees, fences, things emerge out of the darkness. And for me, that's like this metaphor of language coming up. And it's such a rich time for me if I just trust the, again, the sound and the rhythm, the fragments of images that come to me, I can find over time as they extend themselves, a structure of a poem will reveal itself. And that's a totally different way of writing a poem where you think, oh, okay, here's where I'm headed, this is kind of like where it's going. And you learn to sort of like stop and think, it's kind of like that tension with Kazuaki, sort of maybe the unconscious holding you back saying, wait a minute, don't be in such a quick state of mind to write that character. I'm going to make you, you know, struggle a little bit here to even get that first stroke on the page. That was kind of thrilling for me to experience and I'm transferring it to my poetic process that sense of, you know, gestating a little more, of being comfortable with just sitting there in the darkness for a while and not having any words come out and not knowing what's going to happen. Those are really rich times for discovery for me. But ultimately, there is that kind of tension between sort of uh, 
playing with the language and the musicality and then thinking about what is the structure? Is there a poem here? And ultimately, I have to feel like there's some kind of inner necessity that is pushing the language into its shape. I don't want the poem to ever feel like, oh, well, this is just contrived or this is just thought out and preconceived. I want the poem to really have in subtle ways a kind of enactment of discovery like uh, with the parallax poem. I think I knew, I, had, I was fascinated by those two words, the male and female thank you, but I didn't know where it was going to go or that it would circle back. But I had to like, I had the opening and then I had to go very slowly and allow a big mess to happen for me to discover all the things that could happen in the world and for the poem to then come back and say, thank you. Um, well, I'm glad also that you, you mentioned Dana Levin's writing about you because it's one of the, my favorite pieces of, of deep thought on your work, the essay that she wrote in Agni about the ginkgo light. And I'm just going to read a couple things because I think it also highlights in a different way some of the things you've already said, but also I just want to hear your, your thoughts on the parts that I pulled out. So she says, being the natural child of Sylvia Plath and William Blake with an incurable weakness for on-page dramatics, I was not a natural reader for the work of Arthur Z as I first encountered it in the mid-1990s. I was attracted to arias. There seemed to be no spotlit singer in Z's poems, certainly not the operatic kind, singing out of passion. The eye of an Arthur Z poem was most often an I, E-Y-E. Poems I read felt nearly documentary in nature. And then she continues speaking now about the time right after 9-11. And she says, Most people were in death shock, stunned by threat. As I listened to Arthur read Earthshine, I realized the crucial gift his poems offered, immersion, in the quote, shit smear, hair sway, leaf gold ooze of endlessly proliferating life. It was a gift presented without heat, without manipulation of the heart, in keeping with the essential nature of its record, the isness of the is. This is a motto of dispassion that in the face of destruction becomes heartbreaking, even heroic. Z stood at the lectern in the public library and invoked particulars against the debris. Do you do you see yourself in this description of you? Is this is this a is this a moment of another artist seeing or illuminating something um, either that you didn't know about your effect or something you were aspiring toward as a, as as a as a poet? I think Dana's response and reading of my work caught me by surprise, but in nice ways, I think. Uh, as I said, I never thought of mining the self or making the self the kind of spotlit singer that, that felt somehow melodramatic or too egotistical to me, maybe coming again from an Asian background. And I think one of the things I developed to extend that sense of self or create a different kind of an operatic quality is actually through poetic sequences, through sections of poems uh, 
where there might be an I, a you, a he, there are different characters, different people that come and go. And then this multiplicity. And ultimately, I guess I would hope that the sequence becomes a kind of a, a mini opera, but not necessarily of the self, maybe more an opera of life itself. And um, yeah, I remember Dana coming to the reading at the public library and she came up to me asked afterwards and she did seem kind of like, um, like she had um, seen my work in a way she hadn't previously recognized before. And uh, that sense of invoking particulars against the destruction, I wouldn't have articulated that it that way, but I feel like it's apropos. There's a sense of my wanting to be very sharp and clear and descriptive and precise. And in that precision, it's uh, working against the kind of chaos and destruction happening around us. And, and to me, it also says something about the commitment and value of poetry that we commit to, you know, words having meaning, having uh, this kind of clarity and intensity. Um, so it, it came by surprise. But once she said it, I felt like, oh, I can see how I myself wouldn't have articulated my work in that way. But I was uh, grateful that she saw it in that context. Well, to connect back to the words that so intrigued Laylee Long Soldier, Dana Levin says something similar, not about words not being above or below each other, but about experience. She says, Z sacrifices no depth of feeling in emphasizing what I can only say is an equalizing view of human experience. In the Ginkgo Light, poems display no hierarchies, no valuations of better than, worse than. And I wondered about, in light of this, if you could talk about the title of your collected works, both what the glass constellation is referring to and why you chose it as the, um, why you chose it to represent your life's work to date, ultimately. Thank you. Uh, let me start with the title, The Glass Constellation, which comes out of, it's my image out of uh, ancient Hindu philosophy, which is called Indra's net, uh, which is this idea that um, if you think this gigantic net or web of the world, and at each intersection, there's a hanging jewel where something, some event has happened. Uh, Indra's net is this idea of interrelation and interdependency and lack of hierarchy. I'd like to transform it and think of it as an immense chandelier. If you think of all the pieces of hanging glass, suspended glass, and you shine a light beam into this immense chandelier, each hanging jewel, each hanging piece of glass absorbs and reflects the light of every other. So in terms of a kind of vision of the world, it uh, promotes a kind of interdependency, but also this sense of um, where you can't necessarily see a causal connection. You have to trust or accept this notion that things are connected in ways you can't easily see or anticipate. And of course, contemporary physics will uh, confirm that in say the butterfly effect where you know, a butterfly flapping its wings off the coast of the Yucatan causes a tsunami off the coast of uh, you know, Japan. Um, 
there's this idea of every little thing affects every other thing. And for me, the glass constellation was an appropriate image for our collected poems, because even though it's a life journey and I see that I'm doing some things early on that I would do differently or can do better or whatever, they're all interrelated and each one has its necessary place. And I'm not trying to prioritize and say, oh, well, you know, like archipelago, that's the crowning achievement. I'm trying to say, these are all poems in 10 books, including new poems. And they're all part of this large constellation, this large body of work where if a reader looks and pays attention, you will not only see certain points of connection, reflection and refraction, but you'll see a kind of interdependency and larger vision that emerges um, without any kind of like, um, you know, didactic sense of what here's the stages of a journey or whatever. It's part of an organic growing whole. Mm. So for me, the glass constellation made sense as a title thinking it was one large body of work. And it's the last poem to Sightlines. And um, in that particular book, Sightlines comes together in the title poem. And if I ended the book there, the book would have too much of a kind of closure, like these one-liners that appear through the book all reappear in the title poem. And when I was working on The Glass Constellation as a poem, I felt like I needed one poem that was going to expand beyond this idea of all these lines coming together to create some kind of large a sense of a much larger infinite um, vision of space and time and experience. And so I liked the idea that The Glass Constellation was named after a poem late in the book. And a poem that was long, that was like six or seven pages. And then to come back to Dana's uh, idea, um, yes, I, in the ginkgo light, I was specifically tracking the history of the ginkgo leaf as a living fossil, as its biology, what's called dichotomous venation, that each vein splits into two and splits into two and into two, that creates the fan shape and you can never go backwards. But, and there's the sense of Hiroshima that's also in that book, but there's a sense of wanting to take something very small like a ginkgo leaf and finding that it could have as much value as one could see as say the atom bomb at Hiroshima, you know, for the ginkgo tree to flower after the atomic blast. Um, when I discovered that it kind of took my breath away. And so there's a sense of, um, urgency behind the language, but there's also a sense that the very small might look small, but, you know, who am I to say that's irrelevant, that maybe that has, like the butterfly effect, has is part of the tip of an iceberg or is part of something much larger that we can't immediately see. And also the way you describe the Glass Constellation poem uh, collecting one-liners from the the collection that precedes it um, makes me also think of holographic film. Like if you were to cut any piece of a holographic film, let's say of a chessboard, no matter how small or how marginal that piece you cut, you shine a laser through it and it can recreate the entire image. I don't know if that's 
if that's connected because it's not um, interdependence. It's also weirdly the fragment being the whole at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that kind of poetic thinking runs very much through my book in Kamet Hyakutaki and to the writer of fragments, each fragment is a whole is the last line of that poem. So I'm endlessly fascinated by sort of the part in the whole. And I, I love what you just did there about finding the whole in the part. Yes. Well, when I was talking to Jory Graham, I, um, I talked about the panel that you and Forrest Gander were on, that you were invited to be on. You were the two poets in a, on a panel otherwise among climate scientists. And these climate scientists wanted specifically for you and Forrest to be there as poets. Um, and Forrest sent me a question to ask you today um, that, that feels very much a kindred question that I, that I wanted to ask you. I think they complement each other well, so I'm, I'm going to ask both of our questions together as an uh, sort of omnibus question. So, f- so for me, I noticed that climate change is not usually a head-on explicit topic in your poetry, but I wonder if you consider this glass constellation model where not only is the human not placed at the center of the cosmos or by extension at the center of your poems, but where your poems create space for otherness to be active in them, other scales of time, other vantage points. And your poems do this without necessarily justifying the presence of the non-human by making it quote unquote meaningful to us. I wonder if you see this enacting of the glass constellation, not just as an eco-poetics, but enacting a different way of being than the one our species is currently enacting. So perhaps um, the process and the mode being a suggestion of a different way we could be. And here is uh, Forrest's more evocative but related question to you. Arthur, in one short sequence in the glass constellation called Entanglement, you reference, sometimes by their noted absence, turkeys, great blue herons, black bears, rattlesnakes, fire ants, shark's teeth, apple spruce and willow trees, dogs, salmon, and pheasants. Attentiveness to the so-called natural world is nothing new in your work. Long before people began to talk about eco-poetry, your poems insistently integrated the human and the non-human world. Is such insistence part of an ethical perspective? Does your poetry have a role to play in considering our environmental crisis? Where do I start? Those are two <laughs> long, intricate, wonderful questions. I think I'll start with Forrest because it's on my mind. I would say I hope so. Um, I mean, the whole issue of climate change, like it or not, is huge, and it affects all of us. And I want to say that um, I feel like long before there was a movement called eco-poetry, I was doing certain things that were ecological by nature. I was letting things be themselves in the poems. And Forrest points to all these natural phenomena, the black bear, the salmon, the spruce. Um, Those are all keenly attentive details and they are part of this larger worldview. 
I don't ever want to feel like I, as a poet, am trying to be preachy or didactic or tell a reader like this is, you know, what you should do or you should be thinking about this. I think my uh, the evolution of my work has been one where just being sharply attentive and observant to nature, like it or not, climate change is hugely there. And it's not there as a kind of political agenda or ecological agenda. But I do think uh, my poetry presents a kind of ethics and ecological point of view where the relationship between humans and nature, between the self and the natural world, are possibly re-envisioned, or at least the potential to re-envision what that relationship can be is there. I'll, I'll give a, a number of examples. You can track uh, mushroom hunting through the poems in the Glass Constellation. And I was just thinking earlier this week how 30 years ago, when I first learned to hunt mushrooms, I could go up to the Santa Fe Ski Basin in August, and there would be hundreds of different kinds of mushrooms. And there would be like Lactarius deliciosus, these gigantic latex mushrooms that would be huge. They, I think, died in a drought a number of years ago. They never appear. I haven't seen them in over 15 years. And... Um, not a single one, and then they were enormous. They like came out in these immense flowerings. And uh, just tracking the sort of mushrooms that appear in my poems, there's a huge diversity, and then it shrinks down to a handful. And in some ways, I was just thinking in a way that's reflective of what's happening ecologically at the ski basin and in the natural world. With the years of prolonged drought, I think species have just died. But I'm not like trying to foreground it or make it, you know, a, a polemical thing. Uh, in the string diamond, there's a series, there's a catalog of endangered species, and they're just listed by name without any commentary. And I wanted just the sound and the articulation of that to be effective as a kind of litany of loss or potential loss. And I'll connect it to the human world now in the Ginkgo Light, there's a poem at the center called Spectral Line and at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I, I didn't write about the Institute when I taught there for 22 years, but I tried to not uh, write about any of the students because I felt like it was too close to home. But once I left, I felt like, okay, um, I've stepped out of it. I'm going to give myself permission to look back and write something about that. And section five is a long list of Native American tribes. And what I did was when I first, in the early draft, I thought of Native students I had felt privileged and honored to work with and teach. And I wrote their names down. I wrote like the names of 30 students. And then I thought, that's too particular. That's too personal. That's not, what am I going to do with that? And then I thought, at graduation at the Institute of American Indian Arts, they do a roll call where they name the tribe of each graduating student. And then I was like, that's it. If I substitute the names of the tribes for each individual student, you know, a reader doesn't know that behind each tribe is an actual student, but there's a roll call of tribes and those tribes are also endangered. 
you know, some like some of the Pueblos in New Mexico have only 90 people left in the village. Um, that's a roll call that is just as powerful as the endangered species roll call. So I see that sort of um, I'm working with the human and the natural in ways that um, endlessly or to use the glass constellation, they're reflecting and refracting against each other. But I'm not trying to make any kind of polemical thing. In many ways, I'm trying to say, if you just pay attention and look at the natural world today, these things are happening and like it or not, the effects of global warming of climate change are here, like it or not everywhere. And if you look carefully, you're gonna find them. And I think with the use of white spaces that I'm using a lot in my recent poems and in that um, sequence force mentioned entanglement, there's this idea of action at a distance in quantum physics, the idea that two things don't actually have to touch to affect each other, which is also back to Indra's net. Um, and it was, I think Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Yes, yes. I love that. <laughs> I do spooky, too. Because <laughs> it's kind of like, what's going on here? You know, but I like that sense of bafflement. Yeah. Um, I think that can be really rich and helpful. So I do feel like there is definitely a kind of ethics and ecological uh, way of experiencing and being in the world that's at the heart of my work. But I feel like I evolved into it, and I felt feel like I did that before there was an eco-poetic movement. And I don't, you know, my allegiance, certainly eco-poetry is important to me, but I see myself as a poet. And um, so that's a very important sort of arena that I'm working on. Yeah. Well, you sort of accidentally anticipated my next question, because when I was thinking of Forrest bringing up this poem, Entanglements, I was thinking about the recurring motifs in your work, and you have many, the sky and astronomy, physics and radiation, the land and landscape, native and Chinese cultures and cosmologies. But I don't think anything appears more frequently than mushrooms, which is what entanglement made me think of, as if there were subterranean mycorrhizal connections from your poems decades ago, connecting all the way through to your poems now. And it made me wonder if the reason mushrooms were ever present is is simple, that you love mushrooms and you love to hunt for mushrooms, or if in a similar way to Forrest saying that long before there was a thing called eco-poetry, you were practicing it, that perhaps long before the current widespread engagement with the wonders of mushrooms, both by artists and scientists, with mushrooms now offering a new way of conceiving of identity and self, of interspecies cooperation and communication and interdependence, if you yourself were finding meaning and metaphor in mushrooms. Um, and I, I just wanted to, I wanted to know if entanglements, which is something used a lot in books written about mushrooms it's by mushroom scientists and foragers now, mm -hmm. is that, do you see that like the glass constellation as another, um, another meaning making framing? Of your poetry. I, I do, and I, I want to personalize it and say that, again, this sort of came very slowly over time. Years ago, uh, my son picked up a mushroom on a lawn, and I was like, don't eat that. You know, I didn't know anything about mushrooms. I was just like, you know, the alarmed father saying, wait a minute, don't <laughs> eat that. We don't know. You know, you don't know what you have there. Right? You could die from it. 
And, uh, and then a few months later, uh, my son and I saw that at Santa Fe Community College, a local mycologist, Bill Isaacs, was teaching a mushroom identification class. And um, I thought this, this would be great bonding for father and son. You know, we'll go out and hunt mushrooms and this will be fun. And, you know, we could learn something. And my son loved the idea. He was really into it. And so we signed up and every Saturday for like eight weeks in the summer, we joined this group and we would go out into the mountains of northern New Mexico and hunt for an hour. And we'd bring back everything we found and we'd lay them out on park benches and tables and Bill would say, oh, this is, you know, you're going to die from this one. And he was the head of the New Mexico Poison Control. So it wasn't just learning the choice edibles. It was like learning this whole arena of new knowledge. And, and then it fascinated me to see sort of early, middle and late stages of the mushroom. And it also fascinated me that I couldn't identify any of them by looking in a field guide. It just, mm -hmm. I didn't know what to look for. I, and in the Rocky Mountains, there are different varieties. There are all these special nuances. And Bill would say, well, why didn't you dig out the bottom below surface? Because we need that information. And I was like, well, I didn't know to do that. I just cut it off at the ground. And he's like, <laughs> you missed crucial stuff. So it was like this whole learning of a new ecology, you know, a new field. And I loved going out into nature every Saturday and Sunday and um, did it for like six summers. And um, so again, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to learn mushrooms and that's going to be like this metaphor for language. It was just uh, a wonderful thing to do with my son. I got really excited by it. And, and of course, the edible ones are delicious. And it was a lot of fun. And it was also a challenge. And I began to really like going into an environment and knowing, for instance, if I go to the Santa Fe ski basin and I'm at 9,000 feet, say, or 10,000 feet where Ponderosa Pine is, I'm too low. I'm not even going to find any of the bolites or chanterelles, the really choice edibles. I've got to get higher up into the spruce and fir. And I learned, I loved learning like reading a landscape, like even before looking at a mushroom, I had to look at the vegetation and what wildflowers were blooming. It was a way for me to really experience nature in a kind of detail I had never done before. And then to be hunting the mushrooms and collecting them and also sort of scattering them in these baskets, um, it just became a whole new field of learning. And, and yes, then ultimately I began to think, I love this idea that the mycelium is below surface. It's sort of like the subconscious. And then when the mushroom fruits and pops up above ground, maybe that's like this spontaneous outpouring of a poem or whatever, yeah. but you know, you can be too logical or whatever. <laughs> I love that though. <laughs> but I liked the idea that there was the sense of mystery and surprise yeah. and discovery. Um, and I'll, I'll end by saying uh, at one point, um, there's a, in uh, sidelines, there's a poem called Lichen Song. And uh, it was the poet G.C. Waldrop who wrote me and he sent me this big book called The North American Field Guide to Lichens. And he said, Arthur, you've been doing marvelous things about mushrooms, but maybe it's time to put a pause on that. What about lichens? <laughs> and I'd never thought of lichens. It's like, oh my God, that's a whole arena I don't know anything about. Yeah. And, and Forrest, speaking of Forrest, his whole new book is is I know, lichens. it's all about lichens, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, that's beyond me. The lichens get too technical. I think. <laughs> but it did inspire me to write a poem called Lichen Song in the voice of lichen.
Well, that that's a perfect segue because I, I was hoping we could hear mushroom hunting in the Jemez Mountains from your collection archipelago. And then maybe a, I don't know if we'd call it a companion to lichen song, but salt song from your last collection, Sightlines. Mushroom hunting in the Jemez Mountains. Walking in a mountain meadow toward the north slope, I see red-capped amanitas with white warts and know they signal seps. I see a few colonies of puffballs, red ruchulas with chalk-white stipes, brown-gilled poison pie. In the shade under spruce are two red poured bolides. Slice them in half and the flesh turns blue in seconds. Under fur, as a single amanita with basal cup, flaring annulus, white cap. Is it the rocky mountain form of amanita pantherina? I am aware of danger in naming, in misidentification, in imposing the distinctions of a taxonomic language onto the things themselves. I know I have only a few hours to hunt mushrooms before early afternoon rain. I know it is a mistake to think I am moving and that agarics are still. They are more transient than we acknowledge, more susceptible to full moon, to a single rain, to night air, to a moment of sunshine. I know in this meadow my passions are my carousal with nature. I may shout out ecstasies, aches, griefs, and hear them vanish in the white poured silence. Let's see, and then salt song. Salt song. Zunis make shrines on the way to a lake where I emerge, and Miwoks gather me out of pools along the Pacific. The cheetah thirsts for me. And when you sprinkle me on ribeye, you have no idea how I balance silence with thunder and crystal. You dream of butterfly hunting in Madagascar, spelunking through caves echoing with dripping stalactites. And you don't see how I yearn to shimmer in orange aurora against flame. Look at me in your hand. In Egypt, I scrub the bodies of kings and queens. In Pakistan, I zigzag upward through 26 miles of tunnels before drawing my first breath in sunlight. If you heat a kiln to 2,380 degrees and scatter me inside, I vaporize and bond with clay. In this unseen moment, a potter prays because my pattern is out of his hands. And when I touch your lips, you salivate. And when I dissolve on your tongue, your hair rises. Ozone unlocks. A single stroke of lightning sizzles to earth. Been listening to Arthur Z read from his new and collected poems, The Glass Constellation from Copper Canyon Press. 
part of why I wanted you to read Salt Song is because it's told from the perspective of salt, like Lichen Song is told from the perspective of Lichen. But really the main reason I wanted to read it was because of Lucy Tapahanzo's response to it. Um, Tapahanzo is the first poet laureate of, of Navajo Nation. And I first learned about her poetry through my conversation with the poet Jake Skeets. And your, your conversation with Tapahanzo about the glass constellation was probably my favorite one. And she loved this poem, Salt Song. She had you read it and talked about how it reminded her of a Diné ritual. The Diné belief that babies aren't considered to be fully in this world until they have laughed. When they laugh, there's a ceremony that involves putting salt in the baby's hand to welcome them to the world. And the whole conversation felt like an example to me of mushroom-like entanglement or the inter- interdependence of, in- of Indra's net or the glass constellation, because none of what she describes is in the poem explicitly, but the poem seems to invite these hidden connections to be made. And then you you then talked about how you wondered if this impulse of, of trying to speak from the voice of salt came from your Chinese heritage. But you also talked about the things you did and didn't use because they felt too human for a salt to be using in composing a poem. So like earlier when we were talking about for the poem that Forskander pulled out, you said that you let the black bear be itself. But of course, it's happening in human language, right? So what I'd be interested in in knowing is if you could talk about how you tried to get out of the way of salt expressing itself, but also the way salt has to accommodate its its human readership in human language. Salt is such a potent symbol. And I didn't know uh, the story that Lucy told about how babies brought into the world in Diné culture need that salt to sort of, um, that's such a wonderful, powerful story and moment of recognition. Um, I was thinking, I was aware of how Zuni and Hopi have these salt trails where they go and they collect salt and it's this very sort of sacred journey. And I was thinking about how, how fundamental salt is, you know, we needed to live uh, for life to exist. And I think some of the things I wanted to avoid were references like, you know, salting away something or the way we um, might use that image in other ways. I wanted this very sort of archetypal, deep sort of sense of journey that the salt was speaking out of this ancient voice and coming forward and talking to a person, to a human being saying, I'm just not the salt and the salt shaker that you sort of throw on ribeye steak or something. I want you to really see who I am, what I am, where I come from, and what is happening when you take salt into your body and we are joined. And so for me, there was an element of sort of mythic power that was my primary focus, and I wanted to exclude what I saw as sort of more maybe peripheral or tangential or superficial ways of looking at salt. Did you feel like punctuation, which ha- which is notably absent, did you feel like punctuation would have been 
too much of a human intervention? Yes, I, absolutely. Actually, I, I wrote it out in lines, I believe, early on with punctuation. And I felt like this poem and the lichen song, they both, for me, have a kind of urgency behind them. The lichen is telling the person, you're in such a hurry, you're, you're going to you know, walk away from me, and I'm stuck on the ceiling here, but there's a lot I've seen that you should really think about. And the same with the salt saying, wait a minute, you know, you really need to pay attention here. So the poem in lines didn't feel right to me. And I had to think about, well, what would be a form that would be appropriate? And I felt like it's almost like a run-on sentence, like the lichen and the salt have this urgency. They need breathing spaces, but the punctuation is too mechanical or too human. Uh, artifice, and it needed to be more like this sort of voice or breath or pressure that only stopped to sort of gather itself to make the next sort of statement or assertion or say, look at this. And so when I hit on that sort of form in prose and then had those spaces, it felt like that was the right form. Well, I want to I wanna turn to another aspect of your writing and another way you relinquish control or invite factors into your writing beyond your control. And that's the role of, of divination of, of tea leaf readings and the I Ching. I know that the beginning of the glass constellation isn't chronological, but I believe if I'm correct, the first poem we encounter called before completion is your first poem using the I Ching as part of its making. And I was hoping maybe you would talk to us, generally speaking, about the appeal of the I Ching as a poet, and then dial down a little into the particulars of how you might use it to make a poem or as some part of the process of making a poem? These are fantastic questions. Thank you. Um, yes, before completion, the first poem in the Glass Constellation is in six sections, and it's designed to mimic the six lines of a hexagram of the I Ching. And um, to personalize it, I had never used the I Ching in my life before 1993 or four. And I um, got a call early one morning, Naomi Shihab Nye in San Antonio, Texas called me. And she said, I believe you are a friend of this misty poet, Gu Chung. He uh, killed his wife and hanged himself in New Zealand. And I wanted, I felt like I needed to tell you this news. And it was early in the morning. I was, again, wow. speaking of being half awake, I was like stunned yeah. by it. And I thought, uh, I had met Gu Chung in 1985 in Beijing. We'd become friends. And I was so stunned by that. I thought, what do I do with this? Just there's such a strong emotional shock. And then I thought, maybe I'll throw the coins with the I Ching and see what gets generated and see if that helps me reflect on the situation. And I threw before completion. And I had this idea of someone maybe who dies before they complete their life's work. But in looking at the lines uh, and the I Ching gets, it's a based on yin and yang for those who don't know the system. It's based on sort of solid and broken lines, male and female lines. Um, odd and even numbers, and um, you throw three coins six times to create this pattern. So there's this element of chance 
and you can say, oh, you're relinquishing control. Um, on the other hand, you might say you're opening yourself up to something larger and discovering a pattern that's there. I like the I Ching because ultimately it actually puts the human responsibility back on yourself. I find that as I do it, it says like, you know, perseverance furthers or, you know, the superior man would do this. And then I ask myself, am I really the superior man? Maybe I'm an inferior person. I'm the frail, you know, flawed person, but this is what I'm supposed to do. Or, But it's a way of sort of mirroring back and thinking about how each moment is unique, but also part of a continuum, part of something larger. And so for before completion, I looked at the pattern of lines and I thought for each solid line, I'll write a section in a block like stanza. And for each broken line in the hexagram, I would write a fractured, a fragmented line. And I eventually played with it so it doesn't exactly fit the hexagram but it's what got me started. And then that led me to um, other uh, experiences. And uh, my wife, Carol Moldau is a poet and she did the I Ching um, in New York City and she had a bunch of yarrow sticks and I had never done the yarrow stick method before. And I had never done it with someone else before, and we did the I Ching together using the divination process of yarrow sticks, where you're physically holding these stalks, which are irregular, and setting them aside in groups. And I loved, that was a very different experience of doing the I Ching, where it's extended and uh, much more meditative. And then doing it with, with someone, I thought was really wonderful. It wasn't just sort of the solitary self, but this kind of back and forth conversation about an issue at hand. And um, so I found myself wanting to use the I Ching at certain points where I felt like, what can I learn from this? It's not like the I Ching ever says, do this. It's more like the Oracle throws back things and, um, says this is these are things to consider. And I always consider that introduction to the Wilhelm translation by Carl Jung really important because Jung talks about synchronicity and this idea of a causal meaningful connection. You can't say that this event causes that event, but you see this event happen and that event happen and in your mind there's some kind of connection you can't prove they're causally connected, but there's some kind of meaningful connection. Again, it's back to Indra's net in this sense that we can see part, but maybe not the totality of things. And um, that became really important for me as a method. And I'll add and say that sometimes when I'm working, when I'm at a certain stage in my own writing and I'll lay out poems on the floor and think what are its strengths, what are its weaknesses, what are repeating phrases? What could I be thinking about doing that I'm not doing? Sometimes I will use the coin method and throw the I Ching and say, what am I not seeing here? What should I be thinking about? It's just for me a way of reflecting and extending sort of the boundaries of consciousness. And um, finally, let me say, you know, like John Cage and Jackson McLow, you found the I Ching extremely helpful because for Cage, it was a way to take the ego out of the process of decision-making. If like rolling the dice, 
that determine the sequence of, say, notes that were being played in a particular musical composition. You know, he created it, but it incorporates the element of chance. And Jackson McLow loved the idea of decentering the ego and um, not having that ego in charge of everything and throwing uh, the I Ching allowed him to create, he called these like global poems where you were like, the poem was like this mesh of words on a page and you chose your own path through. But then there was a sense of, um, it was nonlinear and it incorporated chance in a way that I think was humbling and fruitful. You're one step ahead of me on on many questions, actually, because I was going to mention this this Donald Justice lecture on silence and John Cage that I was listening to, where he mentions the line, um, chance is always tinged by the conception of fate. And you've sort of answered that, that it's, it's, it seems like you are in that group in the sense that it's less about randomness and, and more about meaning making or meaning revelation through, through the process. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Well, Another way we can look, or another way you look at this, at the um, at these interconnections, is through um, explicitly through quantum physics and chaos theory. And Murray Gelman, the physicist who coined the term quark, named the title of one of his books, "The Quark and the Jaguar," after your poetry. And to me, the language of quantum physics often sounds evocative and even spiritual, like Gelman's term the Eightfold Way, which is a method of grouping quarks that helped explain and predict the presence of certain subatomic particles. And there's even the notion of quantum entanglement that suggests that the quantum state of any particle or group of particles can't be described independently of the state of the others, even when these particles are separated by a large distance. So quantum entanglement on the macro level, both makes me think of mushrooms and also of the Buddhist and ecological notions of interdependence. But I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about this aspect of your work, if it's the language, the specific trove of vocabulary of physics, or what the physics itself is uncovering, or, or probably, I'm guessing, both, that feels important to draw into your poetry into your, and into your poetics. Uh, both. I'm going to personalize my response again. I hope this is uh, fun to do because I don't always get the chance. Yeah, no, I love that you're grounding this in, in lived experience. Someone asked me once, you know, how do I draw from physics and, you know, weaving and mushroom hunting? I said, it's not out of a book. <laughs> it's lived experience. And uh, I suppose my uh, background is a science dropout at MIT was helpful. But for 10 years, I worked as a poet in the schools in New Mexico from 1973 to 83, all over the state. And one of the women who worked for the State Arts Council, Helene Solansky, uh, used to have the poets over for these dinner parties. Well, it turns out her husband, Richard Solansky, was a theoretical physicist. And he became the director of the theoretical division at Los Alamos National Laboratory. So I met uh, two renowned physicists through Richard Slansky, uh, Murray Gullman, and the other one is uh, George Zweig, who also thought of the quark particle, but couldn't figure out a name for it. And Murray having a flair for 
the name, called it the quark, and ended up with a Nobel Prize. There, there's, um, you know, the vagaries of scientific discovery. <laughs> yes. But one thing that happened in those dinners was a lot of the poets can talk to the scientists. They would split up into these two very different groups, you know, in the living room. And I ended up talking to Murray and George, and because I had that scientific vocabulary, but I ended up getting... I feel like this very fascinating, exciting, mystical experience of string theory, quantum physics. And they would be, I remember Dick Slansky um, talking about how string theory needed to be in 10 dimensions. And I was like, what the hell is that? You know, but thinking, well, but I just love the way it was sort of constantly expanding my mind. And Murray turned out to be you know, I turned out to discover that he was an amazing linguist and he knew, I think, 10 languages fluently and he would like recite the history of the word ketchup to me. I remember that from, you know, Malay to Hong Kong to Canton to London to, he, he was like a walking encyclopedia. Uh, at one point I asked Murray, uh, I wanted to use the Middle English and Old English spellings of the word black, but I didn't know how to say them. And I thought, I wonder if Murray knows. And he was like, Arthur, of course I know. <laughs> it's like they're homonyms. They're pronounced exactly the same, but they're spelled differently. And so he was an amazing resource. And um, so on the one hand, the language of physics was helpful and important to me. And I was also at that stage, I think in the 80s, working on River River, uh, archipelago where I was breaking away from that model of, you know, classical Chinese poetry. And for me, it was certainly at that stage, I felt like, oh, I know the language of science. I can use it. I should be using it. Why not use magnetism or quark or electron in a poem as much as moon or river or diamond? You know, I thought, you know, and I was consciously thinking I want more and more of the world to enter my poems. And that's been a lifelong process and struggle, I think. The early poems are nice, but they're self-contained and they have a kind of beauty of language, but they are self-contained. And part of it was how to put more of the world in. So the actual vocabulary of science, I saw as a kind of weapon almost, as a kind of arsenal, or almost like the way you could have anti poetic elements enter a poem and charge the poem. I thought consciously, you know, if you had electron or quark and you had moon and diamond in the same poem, what a kind of tension between those worlds. But also as I got to know those scientists, um, I make a distinction between the sort of technological people at Los Alamos who were you know, busy assembling stuff and, and the worst case scenario, assembling bombs. Um, but the scientists seem to me to have this uh, utter small sense of ego, like they, there was still this thrill of excitement and discovery and wonder and really not knowing. And, um, and Murray was um, amazing and fanatical for that because, um, his sort of reach was so varied. And actually he said to me at one point, the problem with young physicists was their base of knowledge was too narrow. It was only like physics. He knew anthropology, knew languages. And he called me one day and he said, you know, I was reading this poem aloud from River River and it has the phrase, 
the quark and the jaguar, and the quark is simplicity, the jaguar is complexity. And he said, I have the ideas, but Arthur, you're the poet, you have the images. And I've never <laughs> forgotten that. He said, I cannot come up with the images. I got the ideas. Can I use your image as the book from as the title for my book on complexity and complex adaptive systems? And I said, sure, it'd be an honor. So that's how that came about. But then that idea of thinking of 10 dimensions or these dimensions we have very little inkling about started. I tried to interpret them poetically to think about how can I use that as a poet? How can I extend and expand uh, the arena of the poem again? So like this last poem, Entanglement, that Forrest has been referring to, is my return after many years to quantum physics. And um, I don't want to get too technical, but there are two sections in one-line stanzas. And so I wanted, to me, that was new. I've done like a section in one-line stanzas where there's a line in silence and a line in silence, but have them back-to-back -back felt new to me because I felt like this was really taking that view of not recognizing how they all connect or don't connect and trusting that they might somehow connect, but allowing each one to be a microcosm and part of the macrocosm too, to suspend them. And then to bring in John Cage again, who says, you know, it's not only sound, but silence has duration too. And I've always thought of that. He said, as a composer, remember your silences are always, those have to be demarcated, the duration of silences. And for me in those one line stanzas, there's the sense of silence and sound sort of floating or struggling against each other. So the long answer is yes, the vocabulary was very important to me. The discussions um, about creative process were mind blowing. Uh, I'll give you another anecdote. George Zweig, who's really a terrific physicist, told me over one of those dinners, I asked him, you know, when were you most creative? And I was stunned by his answer. And he said, I was most creative when I was standing in line at the grocery store and I saw a butcher, this is like Newton or something. I saw a butcher pull a roll of this, you know, shiny paper and tear it off and wrap a T-bone steak in it. And George Swag said, you know, I always write on this eight and a half by 11 yellow pad and I tear the sheet and then I start over, but somehow just that slightest pause interval breaks my interruption, my creative process. And he saw that when he saw that butcher tear the piece of white paper off and wrap the steak, he said, I'm not buying a steak, but I need to buy that whole roll of white paper you have. <laughs> and George told me you went home and he wrote all of his breakthrough equations on that one roll and he was never able to repeat it. I love this kind of story. This is like yes. creative process. You yes. know, how do you step into these, how do you create these amazing finds? And he said he just rolled and rolled and rolled and he just kept writing and writing. And he made all of his breakthrough equations on that. That's incredible. I love that story. I was also just thinking, even if you didn't have a background in physics, and even if you hadn't met these amazing physicists in these conversations, being attentive, being from New Mexico and being attentive to New Mexico, the land of New Mexico, the history of New Mexico is also the history of nuclear physics. Um, that 
that to be aware would also potentially, like I'm thinking of Juliana Spara and eco-poetics, like is it eco-poetic to write a poem about a tree or is it more eco-poetic to write a poem about the bulldozer that's about to knock over the tree? Um, that um, your engagement with radiation is is being attentive to things that maybe other people, when they're writing landscape poetry, would in New Mexico might, even unwittingly be erasing from what they're seeing. No, I think that's true. I, I think on the um, being attentive is really the key. And, and I would say a priori, you know, one isn't better than the other in terms of writing a poem about a tree or the bulldozer, but they could both be powerful poems. And you can't say beforehand, which is, you know, going to be better than another I guess I would say they both need to be written. <laughs> Nothing else in addition. Yes. Yeah, um, I agree with you. But in terms of attention, I think there's also for me the horror of what Los Alamos represents. On the one hand, there are these marvelous conversations about discovery and what you might call pure science with these physicists. But yes, like it or not, Los Alamos is the birthplace of the atom bomb. And I'll never forget. Um, Again, taking my son uh, to the Los Alamos Museum, the Bradbury Museum. And, you know, he was in elementary school and they have all these gadgets set up and it's fun for the kids to press these buttons and see lights go on. But I, one day I was horrified to see in this museum that they had certain exhibits set up where like if you pressed a button, suddenly you might not have been aware of it, but there were lights embedded in the floor. They would like flash across the floor and they would show like what it was like to be at ground zero or at the point of ignition for an atom bomb. And of course I was thinking, yeah, but there's, it's totally divorced from like the destruction of everything around it. And you're made to like see this beauty of light flashing across the floor almost instantaneously. And so, I wrote this prose poem, which was, again, very rare for me, called the Los Alamos Museum, where I felt like the language of science was so specific, but so very cold and dehumanizing because it was masking the sense of how everything would be obliterated at the place of an atom bomb. And the exhibit in this museum didn't address that at all. Instead, it was sort of glorifying technology or this superior consciousness or look at what we can do. Um, and the horror of that created a very different kind of a poem out of science for me. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting about Murray Gelman is that he he's known for focusing on the smallest of individual subatomic particles, but he's also he was also interested in systems and unifying principles. And he set up the first center for the study of complex systems in Santa Fe. So unlike so much of contemporary science, that by believing the truth is found through controlling all the variables and reducing things to their simplest components in a controlled setting, and often loses sight of the big picture and of systems and of lived embodied entanglements, even this example in the museum is losing sight of the big picture, I think. Right. Right. Um, Gelman seemed interested in both the particle and the system. And I wanted to ask you about that because you're interested not just on in notions of scale, what we can see through a telescope, what we can see through a microscope. And you've used the 
Chinese dragon as a metaphor for the mind in this way, that in Chinese cosmology, the dragon could shrink itself to the size of a silkworm or fill all the space between heaven and earth. Or the line in one of your poems that goes, he glances at Cassiopeia, arcing toward the north-northwest, wonders if mosquito eggs in the pond are about to hatch. And you not only see the imagination is endlessly branching, like you've mentioned, with this branching connecting poetry and ecology and the unique branching pattern of the ginkgo leaf becoming a metaphor for the imagination. But on top of all of that, you have this ongoing engagement, as we've touched on earlier, with the relationship of the parts to the whole, or the particle to the system, perhaps. The question of the connections between parts, the wholeness of parts in and of themselves, and how the whole is made of parts. So, for instance, your collection, Archipelago, each island in an archipelago is a discrete thing on its own, and yet is participating, or at least we see it as participating in something larger, even if we can't see the the connections between the islands under the water. In your collection, Kipu, Kipus are a Peruvian mathematical and linguistic system that uses patterns of knots that are made along a string. So again, we have these discrete things that either serve a purpose in math or in language, but they're all uh, connected into something larger. And I think we could even say that in your uncollected poems about the acequias in New Mexico, where many families are collectively responsible for the upkeep of the acequia, the ditch of water, and they participate in a responsive system among the families and between the families and the status of the water in the ditch with regards to who draws water when, how much water, that you could see this as part of a whole and parts inquiry. But I didn't know if you see these things as connected. Do you do you see the kipu, the archipelago, and the acequia, the fragment and the whole, the individual and the species, the species and the environment? Are these all different manifestations at different points in your life about this question? of, uh, I don't know if it's the holographic nature of reality or the glass constellation na- nature of reality? Yes, I, I think so. And um, and I think they're related in the sense that I'm not necessarily looking for or hoping for an answer because uh, they're uh, one of my central obsessions and like it or not, I have to sort of write through them or write against them and with them. Um, in Archipelago, the, the title poem uh, is draws its energy from Rio Anji, this uh, temple in Kyoto, Japan, where 15 stones are set in a sea of raked gravel, and three of the four sides have walls, and so you can only walk back and forth along one side. And as you look, you can see 12, 13, 14. You can never see all 15 stones at once. They're positioned, they're designed in this particular way in these clusters. And I found that sort of exciting and mind-blowing and uh, wonderful. And it became the sort of structure for that whole book where each poem could be have its own configuration, but below surface, like the mycelium, they would be connected. So yes, I see it as an ongoing project. And I feel like, uh, but rather than mere repetition, I hope it's sort of like this idea of Homeric 
uh, return. Um, I've mentioned in some interviews that Robert Fitzgerald said that when phrases are repeated in Homer, they're not mere repetitions, but they're layerings. They're, they oftentimes have a slightly different angle or they create a different nuance or resonance. So they each time the repeat comes, it enriches, it reinforces, it insists, and it grows in strength and power. And so I feel like um, one of my key concerns is that relationship between the part and the whole. And, and that's sort of a cosmological, you could say even religious sense of not being able to see the totality of things and, um, and not being able to transcend, you know, too, of not having that being able to transcend and see, look down and see the totality. But at each, at different stages, there's that sense of, I'm quoting Wallace Stevens, of trying to find what will suffice, the poem in search of what will suffice. And so they're kind of like provisional responses along the way. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Um, as we near the end of our time together, I, I wanted to return to native cultures and language and connect us back to the very beginning with Laylee Long Soldier and you. There's a, a piece, there's some writing by Simon Ortiz called Song, Poetry, and Language, Expression and Perception that came out in 77 from Navajo Community College Press. And it isn't about non-hierarchical language per se, but it does seem to be about the fragment and the whole. And I was just curious about your thoughts about it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piece together a couple things that he said, um, somewhat paraphrased also. He begins the piece by saying, song at the very beginning was experience. There was no division between experience and expression. And then later he says, Recently, I was talking with a friend who's, an enrolled, who's enrolled in a Navajo language course. She is Navajo, but she does not know how to speak Navajo. She made a comment about not being able easily to learn Navajo as a course of instruction. She said, I can't seem to hear the parts of it, referring to inflections and nuances of spoken sentences and words. I referred to a remark I made sometime before that the way that language is spoken at home is with a sense of completeness. That is, when a word is spoken, it is spoken as a complete word. There are no separate parts or elements to it. For example, when my father has said a word and I ask him, what does that word break down to? I mean, breaking it down to the syllables of sound or phrases of sound, what do each of these parts mean? And he's looked at me with an exasperated, slightly pained expression on his face, wondering what I mean. And he tells me, it doesn't break down into anything. The word, he says, is complete. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if that sparked anything for you. Yeah, I mean, it no, just, it was very ev evocative for me. And I'm not sure if I encountered that. I think I encountered that looking at Laylee's response from your class. And I don't know if it was a piece of writing that you had given to your students or whether it was something that she encountered and linked. Mm -hmm. But um, does that, does that, do you feel a pushback against that? Or do you feel a sense of recognition in that? Or both? I think I feel more recognition than pushback in that. Yeah. You know, in a way, I'm sort of extrapolating, I'm making the poem like the word too. Um, 
And I think it was Rilke who said, you know, all the discussions about poems end up as misunderstandings <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, the poems have this kind of fundamental experience. And yes, they're composed of words. You know, we use language and the experience is conveyed through that language. And you could break it, you could break a poem apart into these words or whatever, but ultimately there's still that sense of the word is complete, the poem is complete. Um, you know, you could parse the poem into these parts, but in a way, uh, I guess there is this impulse to want to let the poem be, to be in that sort of unity of experience. I wonder if that brings us back to the image in a way too, because there's a we're, we're more um, prone to have an image seem like a unity of experience than a word. Yeah, or I was going to revise and say multiplicity yeah. of experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. The images, uh, the way that images move in Chinese poetry to me is mysterious and powerful. And in the strongest poems, you know, not always, but in the poems that feel really powerful, it's like this is the perfect image at the perfect time. Um, and it provides that sense of sort of inner and outer illumination, and it exists almost really beyond words. It's sort of like, this is it. Yeah. Well, before we hear some final poems, I thought we could look forward to the horizon for you as a poet. It is obvious that you're still pushing the boundaries of form and expression. If we look at the arc of, of what we've collected so far, if we look at just the last seven years, your, your collection, Compass Rose, your National Book Award winning sightlines and the many uncollected poems that you've uh, collected here as the White Orchard. We see the appearance of the use of dashes at the end of lines. We see words that are legible but struck through. And in your most recent poems, particularly Asekia Del Llano, we see you engaging with classical forms again, the haiku and the haibun, but interrupting them in ways that make something entirely new. So I, I'd love to hear about any of these, but even more, I'd be, I'd love to hear what you feel like you're reaching toward. What, what unexplored edge are you wanting to go over next, poetically speaking? I hope with luck I can keep going. Uh, I'd like to start by focusing on the Aseki Daliano poem, because that's a poem that came out of COVID, really, with, um, you know, the rupture in social interactions with people sort of going into their private interior lives. It is one of the things that has kept me going is, is the work of the Sekia. Um, and last year, I was actually president of the Sekia Italiano. This, this year, I'm off of the board. But I love the idea that we are all working communally. There are like 15 families, 17 families, I think now, and the Audubon Nature Conservancy at the top of the Sekia is one of the nonprofits. And the city of Santa Fe is the other one. So we all have to work together with the water rights. Uh, I won't go into elaborate detail about all the technical aspects, but um, everyone who has land on the Sekia has a certain day and time when they can draw water off and it affects everyone else. So there is this communal system. And uh, back in the depression, people would like pass bones to each other down the Sekia to use to flavor soup or whatever. People mm -hmm. shared the resources they had. 
Um, but in terms of my poetry, I wanted to write a poem with a different kind of a form. And I turned to the haiban, you know, which is prose with haiku, prose and haiku, um, in terms of, say, what Basha wrote. But one of the innovations I did was, uh, and why I'm taking a little time, is I like this poem because I did a lot of things I wouldn't expect myself to do, and I figure um, readers wouldn't expect me to do. The haiku sections are actually counted syllabically, five, seven, five syllables. And then, so there's prose, a five, seven, five haiku prose. And then instead of another haiku, syllabically are counted two seven syllable lines. So you can take the five, seven, five syllable and connect it to the seven, seven syllable. There are four sections, but you create a tanka, which means short song in Japanese. So inside of each section, there are, are two haibans. There's a prose and a haiku, prose and a two-liner. But there's also a haiku and there's also a tanka. So there are poems inside of poems inside of poems. And this idea of a microcosm and layering and how they refract against each other was uh, a lot of fun for me to work with. And it includes a whole ecological thing about endangered species that exist in this um, sort of microclimate. And toward the end, I slip in the Ganges River because I had this wonderful revelation. You know, again, it's coming out of personal experience. Here I am drawing water off of the Sasekia two times a week. And it's we have maybe, say, 100 yards you know, of land along the water. But the Sasekia goes from Nichols Reservoir, which feeds the city of Santa Fe. And the water that doesn't get used in the Sasekia drops into the Santa Fe River. And the Santa Fe River goes to the Rio Grande. And the Rio Grande is like, I don't know, 1,800 miles long. Suddenly, this part is part of this gigantic hole. Mm -hmm. And I love that sense of feeling like this mini little thing isn't so insignificant because you start putting the pieces together and it's this huge water system, uh, waterway. And I couldn't resist layering the Ganges River and this idea of laying prayer candles out on the water. So there's a lot of destabilizing of the narrative. But I was excited because I was writing a poem in a form I'd never tried before during COVID. Um, it's very nature-based, but there's also a sense of communion at the last haiku, the last two seven-line syllables are um, getting a cactus spine here. I draw a translucent cactus spine out of your hand. There's a connection between an I and a U connected in this landscape. And, um, and a sense of intimacy, too, that's available on a small scale that isn't available on the large scale. So I feel like in this section of new poems, I'm doing things I've never done before. And again, the long answer to your question is, how do I continue? Um, I have a sequence that I've written called Spring View that's in nine sections very early on during COVID. But I included the chemical equation for photosynthesis into the poem. Oh, wow. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, it's so <laughs> anti-poetic. And then I thought, I kind of like this, because in a way, that's the equation of all life without photosynthesis, without converting sun energy into chemical energy, into plant energy. You know, there would be no life on this planet. 
I thought, well, it's kind of fun to, again, here's my science background of taking something that appears so unpoetic and putting that right directly into a poem. I thought that's something I've never done before. So I can't say too, I don't want to say too much, but I have a lot of ideas in mind and um, and I'm not trying to like be new for the sake of being new. I guess I want to say that I feel like at each stage when I've put a book together, I'm not saying, oh, it's five years, it's time for me to put a book together. You know, I think it took me seven or eight years to put Kipu together because I had this sort of structure I wanted to work on and I didn't want to rush it. So I feel like at certain moments, I feel like this is right. I'm putting this book together, it coalesces the vision and energy. And what happens next? Um, well, I have ideas, but again, <laughs> yes. I'm just giving you clues. I love that. And you can, and we can see you reaching, I mean, you pick any point in the glass constellation, we can see you reaching beyond, mm -hmm. beyond yourself. Thank um, you. Let's end with two of the newer poems. And I was thinking okay. Pyrocumulus, which also references the ditch, and and uh, and then end with um, transpirations. Just for fun, let me reference Pyrocumulus and say that I could not have written this poem without the panel I did with Forrest Gander and the two climate scientists oh, wow. at San Jose State University because one of the climate scientists was researching fire and in the time of you know climate change. And one of the things that really struck me in conversation with him was when he said to me, well, you know, fires, intense fires create their own microclimates, their own weathers. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. That was exciting. Is And it, here it is, pyrocumulus. Peony shoots rise out of the earth at 5 a.m., walking up the ridge. I mark how in April, Orion's left arm was an apex in the sky. And by May, only Venus flickered above the ridge against the blue edge of sunrise. In daylight, a pear tree explodes with white blossoms no black-footed ferret slips across my path. No boreal owl stirs on a branch. At 3 a.m., dogs seethed and howled when a black bear snagged a shriveled apple off a branch. And waking out of a black pool, I glimpsed how fire creates its own weather in rising pyrocumulus. Reaching the ditch, I drop the gate. It's time for the downhill pipes to fill. Time for bamboo at the house to suck up water. Time to see sunlight flare between leaves before the scorching edge of afternoon. And the last poem in the book, uh, Transpirations. Transpirations. Leafing branches of a backyard plum. Branches of water on a dissolving ice sheet. Chatter of magpies when you approach. 
Lilacs lean over the road, weighted with purple blossoms. Then the noon sun shimmers the grasses. You ride the surge into summer. Smell of pinyon crackling in the fireplace. Blued notes of a saxophone in the air. Not by sand running through an hourglass, but by our bodies igniting. Passing in the form of vapors from a living body. This world of orange sunlight and wildfire haze. World of iron filings pulled toward magnetic south and north. Pool of quicksilver when you bend to tie your shoes. Standing, you well up with glistening eyes. Have you lived with utmost care? Have you articulated emotions like the edges of leaves? Adjusting your breath to the seasonal rhythm of grasses. Gazing into a lake on a salt flat and drinking in reflection the Milky Way. It's been such an honor to spend all this time with you today, Arthur. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. We were talking today to Arthur Z about his new and collected poems from Copper Canyon Press, The Glass Constellation. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Arthur Z. adds the reading of five of his poetry translations that track his evolution as a poet himself. Two from the Tang Dynasty, one a Chinese modernist poem, and two longer contemporary Chinese poems. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Forrest Gander, Deera Nagrifa, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Emre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.